This is an ABC podcast. Why do judges throw the book at offenders who use cryptocurrency as a payment platform? It's sophisticated, it's trying to go under the radar, if you like, and that's something that will lead a judge to view it as an aggravating factor in sentencing. But is the use of cryptocurrency really the marker of a sophisticated criminal mind? That's coming up shortly on The Law Report. Hi, Damien Carrick with you. In an Australian first, a bill to protect intersex people from undergoing deferrable and non-urgent medical treatments without their consent was recently introduced into the ACT Legislative Assembly. Because the Labor Green government have the numbers in the one-chamber parliament, this groundbreaking bill is expected to pass and become law later this year. I should warn, this conversation includes discussion of surgical procedures. Following these developments closely is Tony Briffer, Mayor of Hobsons Bay in Melbourne, an international LGBTQI plus advocate and also the world's first openly intersex mayor. Tony Briffer, the introduction of the Variation in Sex Characteristics Restricted Medical Treatment Bill 2023, how important is this for you? It is extremely important. It's, it's much overdue and many people in the community think that all these inappropriate interventions on intersex children and babies, such as surgically reducing the size of a baby girl's clitoris, is something in the past, but it's actually still happening today. So legislation is important to make sure that these sorts of abuses cease. So what exactly is it to be intersex and what percentage of the community come within that community or or that group of people? It's around 2% of the of the population has an intersex variation, um, otherwise known as a variation of sex characteristics. So what it means is that we are born with innate sex characteristics that aren't typical um, of someone that's exclusively male or, or female. So we have biological sex characteristics that are a combination, I guess, of both. That could be genetic, so we could be a 46XY person, but otherwise looking completely female, someone that's got 47 double XY chromosomes, um, someone with congenital adrenal hyperplasia, all sorts of different variations that, that constitute intersex. And what sorts of surgery or medical interventions are performed on infants or children who are identified as intersex? When doctors identify or diagnose a person as having an intersex variation, particularly in childhood, they try and remove any sort of ambiguity. So any any characteristics that are not of the sex of rearing, they try to remove. So if a baby girl or young girl has internal testes, for example, as, as I did, then the doctors seek to remove them, even though they're healthy, they're not doing anything wrong, and the surgery is irreversible and not medically required. And how do you feel about the interventions which were done on you as an infant or as a child? How, how do you reflect on those? The, the way that I see them personally is that for me, and you know, I'm 52 years old, when, when they were done to me, I am very comfortable knowing that the doctors thought that they were doing the right thing to me at the time. Um, even though they were done without my consent and my parents were very much coerced into approving those interventions. 
However, since the 90s, doctors know these interventions are fraught and have been, you know, been, can't come into question. And there's been all sorts of cases like Remarion that say, you know, if, if you're going to do surgeries on children that are irreversible and not medically required, you need to get court's approval. And that hasn't been happening for intersex children. And it needs to stop. It needs to be properly regulated, prohibited. And if intervention is, is required, then they need to get approval for them. Tony Briffer, Mayor of Hobsons Bay in Melbourne and international LGBTIQ plus advocate and the world's first openly intersex mayor. Thank you so much for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you, Damien. Now, the Remarion case didn't involve an intersex child. Rather, it centred on a severely intellectually and physically disabled 13-year-old whose parents sought to have her sterilised. In a landmark ruling, the High Court found that non-therapeutic sterilisation can only take place if permitted by the courts. Ghassan Kassasia is the legal director with LGBTIQ plus organisation Equality Australia. Ghassan Kassasia, what sorts of interventions have been carried out in the past and are currently being carried out on children born intersex? So there are interventions, for example, that seek to normalise the look and function of a child's genitals so that they appear or function more typically of a male or female body. For example, surgery on young girls that seek to normalise the look of their genitals or surgery on young boys to, for example, where they pee to make them be able to pee standing up. So sometimes the surgeries and the interventions are what we might term as cosmetic, and other times they have a bodily function uh, goal or component to them. That's right, and that's the tricky thing here. So what the ACT legislation tries to do is look at those irreversible medical procedures or procedures that can't be reversed without further medical treatment to look at whether they're necessary and what the rationale underlying those treatments are Is it to prevent significant harm to the person or is it justified by other social and cultural, particularly gender norms, around how bodies should look or behave, which are not actually going to affect the person's ability to um, function and, um, and live in the world? And when it comes to what can be described as as uh, interventions which are unnecessary in, in, in medical terms or in terms of functioning in the world, what can those consequences be of that kind of procedure? Well, the first and most significant is people don't get an ability to say what happens to their own bodies. Some of the physical consequences can include loss of sexual sensation, loss of sexual function, scarring, even incontinence, um, and in worst case, um, gender misalignment. So people are making decisions that are very personal to someone's sense of who they are and their bodies that later they may grow up to regret and they never had a say in. What does this legislation do? So it, first of all, continues to allow any urgent medical um, procedures to to go ahead without any oversight in terms of pre-approval, subject to uh, reporting to what they've set up as a panel that has a group of different types of expertise. So medical experts, human rights experts, people with lived experience, psychosocial expertise and ethics expertise. 
that group will look at in circumstances where a person can't make the decision for themselves, for example, because they're too young, whether to leave options on the table that include surgical or medical procedures. And that group has to work out effectively whether those procedures can wait until the person's old enough uh, to make a decision for themselves or whether they should be done earlier. And this independent assessment board, so it's comprised of people with lived experience of, of being intersex, uh, experts in medicine, human rights, ethics and, and psychosocial support, uh, together with the parents, talk through the options. Is that is that right? That's right. So they have two ways of effectively approving um, a range of treatments. One is through a general pathway where they can prescribe a class of treatment or conditions that will always be okay to proceed without any pre-approval or further pre-approval. And people can also make an individual application to the, the panel. The idea is that the panel sits with the family that's affected to get the, the views of experts from across those disciplines, but also can get expertise from outside those that panel, including what we've known from previous applications or what the evidence currently says in terms of interventions as well as the risks and, and benefits of them and the risks and benefits of alternatives to work out what options should remain on the table for parents to make their own decision as to which of those options they want for their child. So what happens if there's no consensus? So what happens if the medicos say, no, this is a medical intervention, but the people with lived intersex experience uh, say, no, this is not necessary, or, or say the parents say, we want to proceed and either the medicos and or people with uh, lived experience say that's not the best way forward. Who has the ultimate say in these situations? So in the first instance, the decision would be made by a panel of five. It can also be reviewed internally by another panel um, constituted by five different people with similar expertise. And, you know, at the worst case, it can be appealed further to the tribunal or onto a court. But the, the detail of how the committee will operate will be determined, I think, also in regulation, which sits under the legislation. So the extent to which, for example, the committee has to consult and reach consensus, I think is detail that's yet to be um, set out in the regulation. But my expectation is that you would have to have at least a majority of the committee agree to a course of conduct before it can be approved. Mm. This is the first legislation of its kind in Australia. Are similar laws already operational in other countries? There are. So the first was in Malta in 2014, and there's been a range of countries that have passed laws like Iceland, Portugal, Germany, Greece most recently to address this situation, to preserve for the person who's most affected by these decisions that decision over their own bodies when they're old enough to make it. And I understand that Equality Australia have done some research or consultation with the intersex community about how they perceive their experiences and the medical interventions done to them. What did you find when, when you did that consultation? So that consultation, we were commissioned by the Victorian government that's also looking at laws in this area in 2021. And it interviewed and spoke with intersex people as well as their families, as well as clinicians. What was clear from 
particularly the intersex people we spoke to, is sometimes they regretted the decisions that were made for them. And sometimes they would have made the same decision themselves, but what they regretted was having their right to have a say in that decision taken away. Uh, some people weren't told about the nature of the treatments that were performed on their bodies and the consequences for some people of the, the decisions that were made, like their inability to have children, infertility, as a consequence of some of the treatments was really devastating. And it goes to the nub of why these laws are important, because questions of, for example, weighing up the risks of infertility versus other risks is such a personal decision that really only that person can make for themselves. So I spoke to two people who had the same treatment who felt very differently about that treatment because of that fertility question. And for one person who that fertility issue was really significant, you know, that decision might have been different if they had the right to make it themselves. Were there people who reflected on or regretted a lack of intervention when they were an infant. Uh, I'm wondering that these are such complex issues. Everybody will have a very individual experience. Well, actually, there's a range of people with an intersex variation that won't ever know that they've got an intersex variation and it might not be apparent to them until puberty or when they try and have children. And so there's actually a range of people who've not had interventions at all and have lived perfectly happy and satisfied lives through, throughout childhood without any intervention. The majority of people we spoke to were people who have had interventions. A very small number of people were happy with the interventions that were performed on their bodies. Some preferred them to be earlier, but in the most part, people really want to have a say in these very personal decisions made about their bodies that affect not only how their bodies look and function, but how they feel about who they are and the autonomy that they have over their own own lives. And do you have any sense of how these systems, which are already up and running in, in, in certain other countries, how well they have worked? Well, in some cases, they're being positive in that they've set particular parameters for decision-making. So, for example, they've said you can't take into account certain factors in making the decision like gender norms or seeking to create a body that fits what is socially acceptable rather than create a society that accepts that we actually have the diversity within our human existence and bodies. Um, so that part's been positive. There have been some criticisms about these laws not necessarily being funded or operationalised in an effective way. For example, the lack of appointment of people to the body that would make the decision. But I think what's happened in the ACT has been alongside the law an investment in, in education and in psychosocial support. And also the parameters of the law in the ACT are much further spelt out about who must be appointed to the, the body and how long they have before they have to make a decision. So a lot of that criticism of other schemes which are less developed have really informed a much better developed scheme in the ACT. Gesan Kesasia, Legal Director with uh, LGBTIQ plus Organisation Equality Australia, thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. 
Now, if this conversation raised any issues for you, you can contact Equality Australia or Intersex Human Rights Australia. We have links to both organisations at the Law Report website. If you're a criminal who conducts business using cryptocurrency, judges will throw the book at you. That's the finding of new research, the first of its kind in Australia, which reviewed 59 criminal cases up to the year 2020 involving Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. About 80% of these cases involved drug offences. The report's author is lawyer and RMIT academic Dr Aaron Lane. What did you find? Overall, on balance, what the courts have said is that using cryptocurrency as a form of payment is a marker of sophistication. And if if you go about offending in a sophisticated way, uh, in a way that tries to disguise uh, the offending or, or really evade the law enforcement, then that that's a more serious type of offence and will carry a more serious penalty as a consequence. Well, I guess deterrence is also an important factor in, in sentencing. And, you know, if, you know, the currency of choice for criminals is cryptocurrency or Bitcoin, it's a great, you describe it as it's a great payment platform for criminals. And it's also a criminal laundromat for cleaning money and also opens up, of course, the possibility of tax evasion, let alone other crimes. So so you can totally understand why judges want to deter people. They want to stamp, they want to come down heavy on this. Absolutely. So there's there's a reason that courts are wanting to, I guess, push that that idea of general deterrence, that is to impose a sentence on one offender that other potential offenders will look around and say, um, gee, I might not engage in that in that activity, knowing what the, the consequence might be. And do you agree with the judges that if you're using cryptocurrency, you are a sophisticated offender and, and uh, you know, th- that is a problem. I think that view could be treated with more nuance. Uh, and, and I think that that view is becoming less true as time goes on. What I mean by that is in 2013, um, you would have been a very, very early adopter of this technology. It wasn't readily available. Um, you, you couldn't uh, necessarily just you know, walk off the street and get a cryptocurrency exchange account like you can today. So what might have been technologically advanced or, or quite sophisticated payments technology in 2013 is very, very different from what that looks like in 2022 where now it's not a niche product over a million australians have a a cryptocurrency account according to survey data from roy morgan recently so um we've gone from a stage where it's where it's very very niche and maybe you did need a level of technical sophistication but today it's it's really akin to opening a bank account online which um almost anybody with basic technology basic computer skills can do so far we've been we've been talking about the use of cryptocurrency in criminal transactions like like drug importation but but what about uh, cryptocurrency scams you actually uh, you, your legal practice uh, Duxton Hill a lot of it revolves around fraud and and asset tracing what are the sorts of common crypto scams that people walk into your office with and say help 
Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, I, I see clients that have lost, you know, four, five, six, uh, even seven figures to these cryptocurrency scams. And there's, there's different types of scams. The, the major one, though, are investment scams. Um, and, and this is where scammers create a website that resembles a legitimate, you know, investment trading platform. Um, sometimes it's a, it's a fraudulent copy of a real business, at, you know, a different web address, but, but it looks like uh, a, a well-known business, or it could be a completely made-up one. And we've, we've seen, and it's been reported in the media, you know, fake advertisements on social media platforms with, you know, fake celebrity endorsements and the like. And what will happen is, is people will click on those advertisements, they'll leave their details, they're then contacted by the scammer to make a relatively small payment, you know, it could be $500, um, which is, you know, it's, it's significant, but it's not a huge amount of money. And then that gets access to the platform and, and people start this, what they think is trading activity. In actual fact, there's actually nothing going on behind the platform. It's it's almost like a simulation or, or a computer game. But over time, you are convinced to invest more and more and more money as it looks like you're profiting. Uh, and then what happens is at some point, you want to withdraw that money and, and the scammers don't let you do it. They'll come up with excuses as to why your, your funds can't be uh, withdrawn or they'll say that you owe taxes or that there's uh, an exit fee or, or they'll come up with a range of different excuses and and try and get you to put even more money into it. That That is by far the most common type of scam that, that I see, but there's variations on those. You are often approached, I understand, by family lawyers. What are the issues around cryptocurrency when it comes to identifying and then dividing assets uh, when a marriage dissolves? This is an emerging trend that we're seeing um, through the, the academic research that we're doing is really looking at what cases have, have been reported on. Now, we decided, given that the majority of the cases uh, were focused on, on criminal decisions, that in the first bit of research that we did, we'd, we'd focus on those. Looking at the most recent data set, 21, 22, there's, there's now been another, you know, 130 plus uh, decisions that have been published. And one of the things that comes out of that is the number of family law disputes. And there's a number, there's actually 28 family law decisions in the last two years um, that mention, you know, Bitcoin or, or another cryptocurrency. And a pretty common one in the early cases was, um, you know, a husband or a wife would say that the other party had cryptocurrency. The other party would deny that or, or say that they had already disposed of it. And that would be the end of it. And there was nothing else said in, in the case about it. Now, reading between the lines, what that says to me is that it was put in the too hard basket. You know, the, the lawyers didn't want to chase down that rabbit. Um, it, it wasn't seen as a, as a worthwhile exercise. Um, and so really didn't pursue it. Because forensically, it's just too difficult to track down. Well, not, not necessarily difficult, but, um, but expensive. And have you looked at any of the family law cases? What are the courts, how are the courts approaching this? There was a case in, in 2020 where the husband had made various investments in cryptocurrency and sought to 
retain those assets as part of the the property settlement. Um, the the property settlement was obviously you know before the courts it was in dispute, and and the court had to decide amongst other things. Well, what value do we place on that cryptocurrency? And so that's one of the big issues at the moment that is before the courts. How do we actually put a value on it, particularly when cryptocurrency prices are so volatile? And so what the cryptocurrency might have been originally purchased for might be actually quite different to what it's worth on the day uh, that the, the court decision is being handed down. And, and that might be very different again to what it's, it's worth in a month or, or a year's time. So it's a difficult issue for the court. It's made more difficult by the fact that parties, not just in the, the case that I'm thinking of in 2020, but in other cases of, as well, try to not be forthcoming with uh, their, their ownership of those assets. Indeed, it's a perfect way of hiding the asset, right? Like hiding the, hiding the, the money in this form. Well, yeah, you've, and, and that, that comes back to you've got to know where to look. And I think in, in that 2020 case, you, you spoke about um, in the absence of any disclosure detailing the current value or, or the market patterns, the court just said, look, we're just going to add the purchase price of the cryptocurrency. We're going to add that back to the, the wife's asset pool and just calculate it that way. That, that's right. I mean, the, the, the approach that the court took in that case was to use what the best evidence was. And really, the only evidence before the court was the purchase price. Um, and, and it didn't have before it any accounting or, or expert evidence on what the valuation might be at, at a particular time. And so, you know, the best evidence before the court was, was that purchase price. And, you know, I, I think that's going to be an ongoing area of dispute for parties where one party might seek to minimise uh, that value uh, and, and the, the opposing party might seek to maximise, you know, the, the value of that portfolio. Hmm. Well, we'll look, wrapping up, uh, this whole conversation is predicated around crimes that have been prosecuted and, and a, a couple's assets that uh, are in dispute. The, the meta question here is, uh, you know, are most people getting away with that? Are they successfully hiding uh, the criminal transaction or the asset using cryptocurrency? Well, it's it's a, it's a good question, um, and I mean, I, I can only tell you what uh, what our data set tells you. Um, what what I would say though is that the law enforcement are becoming more sophisticated as, as well. They're responding to to the operating environment, and and what we see um, around the country are specialist cryptocurrency task forces um, at at uh, at the state and territory policing level, and in the AFP as well. Um, they are using sophisticated blockchain analytics technology. They are particularly resourced at the um, in in imputation cases, but but I must say those cases lend themselves to to a lot of physical evidence. Um, where you've got a, a suspicious package uh, ar arriving and you can put physical surveillance on something, then the cryptocurrency element becomes part of the puzzle, but it, it's not the whole puzzle. The more, I think, the difficult problem to solve and, and where the big gap is at the moment for law enforcement is around these scams. And, and they're not loan operators. These are professional outfits um, that, are, that are very sophisticated and they're, they're operating 
mainly outside of Australia, um, and and so that that is the that's the big challenge I think for the for the next few years. Dr. Aram Lane, uh, lawyer and RMIT academic, thank you. Thank you for speaking to the Law Report. Thanks, Terry. Appreciate it. That's all we have time for. A big thank you to producer Christina Kukolia and also to technical producer Matthew Crawford. And on whatever podcast platform you found us, please do leave us a review. It helps others find us. I'm David Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.